Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is one of the essential historians of modern America. 20 years ago, he published Before the Storm, a book about presidential candidate Barry Goldwater's 1964 attempt to turn the Republican Party into an ideological conservative project. His latest book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, completes a tetralogy about the rise of conservatism from Goldwater to Reagan, which doubles as a gripping narrative history of American life during that period. It's an astonishing body of work. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to him. Rick Perlstein, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. When you published Before the Storm, how far did you think you would end up going with this story? Oh, I had conceptualized uh, a series of books on the rise of Reagan. So I have completed uh, the project as conceived back in uh, 1996. Wow, you totally stuck to the plan. Half my life. <laughs> yeah, other things, you know, other things, you know, life threw me other curveballs. But in that part of uh, my life, yeah, the plan was uh, uh, conceived and executed. And I mean, it's sort of obvious that, that Gold War II would be the starting point. Why is the election of Reagan the end point? I suppose I'm asking, finishing the, the, this book, I was just like, well, now I want to read about, you know, Reagan's first term and so on. But why does that feel like the natural end? Well, it was a hinge in American history, right? So the period that I'm writing about, let's call it 1958 to Reagan's inauguration in 1981, at the outset, as... I establish in Before the Storm, the consensus of pretty much every established voice in American life was that conservatism was irrelevant, that America was a liberal nation, that America was heading in the direction of Europe, that you know what, the kind of semi-feudal authoritarian political system in the South was vestigial. And you know, the election of Reagan in 19... 19- 81 was, in fact, an apotheosis of conservatism that was greeted as evidence that, no, it turns out America is a center-right nation. And so that was the story I wanted to tell. And, of course, I was writing it, you know, I was conceiving this idea in 1996. There had yet to be a George W. Bush or a, a Donald Trump. And when Bill Clinton, of course, was executing his presidency, uh, this was around the time of his re-election. He, of course, infamously did so by, quote-unquote, triangulating with the American right. So it was really um, one of these structural situations where, just like Franklin Roosevelt defined the politics of America for the next you know, um, 40 years after his presidency, right, because all future presidents... Republican or Democrat had to basically adapt to the world he created. You know, Eisenhower famously accepted the New Deal and even expanded upon it in some ways. And that was what was the anguish that, you know, kind of created the modern conservative movement. Bill Clinton was trimming his sails in exactly the way that Reaganism would dictate. So that was the problem. In a lot of ways, it started out by explaining not the Republican Party, not the conservative movement, but why conservatism it's become so hegemonic that someone like bill clinton was doing things like quote unquote ending welfare as we know it amending not ending affirmative action announcing that america was the world's indispensable nation and things like that and moving on to reagan did you find him a harder character to fathom than people like nixon or, or goldwater there is this something sort of there's a lot of information about him. there still seems something that's, that's kind of elusive. Right. Well, there's, of course, the famous example of his um, biographer, 
whose name escapes me. It's, was it Lou Cannon or was it? No, no. Lou Cannon was just a very conventional biographer. It was the guy who was paid something like, you know, $5 million advance. And he realized he couldn't figure out Reagan. So he wrote a fictional account of Reagan instead. Dutch. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I, uh, I mean, there Nixon and Reagan are very different kinds of people to write about. I mean, Nixon is this Shakespearean character with hidden depths and, you know, all sorts of ironies and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, urges at war within him, blackest narcissism, but also he could transcend that and, and, and you know, kind of remarkable fellow feeling and had this amazing intelligence and strategic sense. So yes, you never get tired. You know, it's like London, you know, if you're tired of Nixon, you're tired of life. And you know, <laughs> Reagan famously, his own wife says, you know, there's a part of him that he just does not show anyone. And his wife said, you know, he doesn't even show me sometimes. And instead of saying, oh, you can't figure out Reagan, he's inscrutable, right? You got to be able to crack his, you know, hard narcissistic shell in order to find the kind of gooey center of emotion underneath. Once you kind of make the interpretive turn to say, no, that's the person, right? Some people's self-protective shell that they build, often out of childhood trauma, and certainly that was the case of Ronald Reagan, who had this a terrible childhood with this you know, father who was an alcoholic and you know, practically abandoned the family. That's him, right? He is the adult child of an alcoholic. And once you think about how the product of traumatic childhoods, you know, kind of organize their psyches, that becomes the problem to explain, you know, not what is underneath the protection. I found him challenging and rewarding but, you know, my last book, Invisible Bridge, I wrote an account of and it's, it's kind of there's an interesting methodological problem because people who become giant movers and shakers in history aren't movers and shakers in history <laughs> in their childhoods. Right. They're obscure people from obscure families. So it's hard to kind of come up with the kind of accounts of their life that you can you can. I mean, I suppose. Some people in the British context, you know, had aristocratic families, maybe, and they were easier to come up with accounts of what they were like as children. Yeah. But you really kind of do some very interesting archaeology in these kind of small town newspapers. And I'm quite pleased at how I was able to, to do that in my book, Invisible Bridge, and tell the story of this child who is literally um, coming up with a self-conception of himself as heroic and seeking out opportunities to exercise heroism as a way to kind of transcend his, um, you know, kind of anguish, emptiness. Once you get into the situation where they kind of match their psyche to that of the public, right, in a democracy, and say, this is who I am, and people recognize that in themselves somehow or uh, serve some kind of psychic need in themselves, then you're on your way to winning the kind of passionate support that you need in order to govern in a democracy. So that process was really fascinating to write about. Because, you know, in, of course, in the 1970s, America was looking for a hero, right? I mean, I, I, I have a chapter called Superman, yeah, yeah. right? About how basically uh, the pop culture that people were consuming showed that they were not into moral ambiguity anymore. They wanted people who would lead them out of the wilderness. Well, you show that, to put it as neutrally as possible, he, he said a lot of things that were untrue. Yes, he did. You know, there's a bit, I think it's quite from, from uh, Rick Hertzberg being like, ah, we've got him, you know, and I think in one right. of the debates that he, he said something that was untrue, and it's like, ah, we can nail him on this. And obviously, um, and this will be familiar from the, from the Trump years, you know, it doesn't work like that. And, and a lot of energy was devoted to working out what kind of liar Trump was. Right. Um, and even if he always knew that what he was saying wasn't true, or, or if he just lived 
in this very kind of uh, fluid uh, reality. How does Reagan's untruths compare? Did, did he always know what he was doing? Right. Very different. So are you familiar with the, the mid-century American film of Face in the Crowd? Uh, yes. Right. So it's a classic film on basically authoritarian populism and how this folksy uh, country singer becomes you know, the dictator of America, basically. And the last scene is he's caught in an open mic, you know, saying, oh, I've sure showed it to these rubes, you know, and the scales fall from America's eyes and he falls from grace, right? Which is exactly not how it happens, because the way people tend to perceive a con man, if they identify with the con man like Donald Trump is, he's conning on their behalf, right? Of course, he's fleecing these other people, but I'm in on the hustle, right? So it's a Mm. very kind of sophisticated operation in a sense, to the extent you can call the relationship of Trump to supporters is sophisticated. And certainly in the case of a Donald Trump, cunning and cynical, and it's not quite he knows he's lying. It's not as simple as that. But he, um, you know, it's just kind of such a narcissist that he kind of, anything he says, he sees as true by virtue of himself saying it. With Ronald Reagan, I really do think what is extraordinary about his relationship to the truth uh, is his guilelessness. And one of his greatest values to kind of, let's just say, the powerful people who see him as a useful tool for themselves was how they could program him uh, to very, very sincerely make representations that weren't true, but that he believed were true because they fit his kind of underlying narrative about how the world works. When it came to, for example, when he was the leader of the Screen Actors Guild, and there was a very violent and impassioned and important strike in Hollywood in 1945, and that one of the factions in the strike was this kind of democratic union that was kind of breaking up the cartel between the movie studios and this corrupt union. But the movie studios framed the honest union as controlled by communists. Uh, you know, very typical kind of Cold War trick. And they weren't. Even someone in the other union said, oh, no, they weren't communists. That was kind of like just a trick we pulled. But Ronald Reagan absolutely believed and went to his death believing that he had fought, uh, you know, a twilight struggle you know, <laughs> on the picket lines of Hollywood against the communist attempt to take over Hollywood. Right. He absolutely believed this. He wanted to write a book about this. Actually, I found a book contract he had in the seventies to write about, you know, how he fought the reds in Hollywood. And for some reason, the book never got written And my suspicion, although I never could find evidence, direct evidence for it is that Simon and Schuster his publishers, also my publishers realized, wow, this guy is completely, <laughs> you know, living this fantasy in his own head. And of course, living that fantasy in his own head was often what he did as president. You know, I mean, there are all mm. kinds of examples of, you know, whether it's him claiming that he'd, you know, been present when the concentration camps in Europe were liberated, right? He would make up stories that he, you know, in fact, seen in movies and claim that they were true. You know, the idea that this guy gave an impassioned speech, you know, as his plane went down and then won the Medal of Honor, right? And a newspaper reporter, you know, kind of went through the Medal of Honor citations and realized that, in fact, this was in a movie. <laughs> uh, but in, in, in all these cases, you know, Ronald Reagan actually believes, you know, what he's saying. And he's not a guy who's, you know, kind of sitting in a background and saying, how can we put one over on the rubes, right? <laughs> no, definitely not. 
The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We are proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. And the book's third major character, I suppose, after Carter and Reagan is the conservative movement known as the New Right. Mm -hmm. And and what struck me was how these people, I suppose, uh, Phyllis Schlafly would be be someone that that, that a lot of people would know. They managed to take these issues like the Equal Rights Amendment, which had a lot of support, including, I mean, that obviously initially had support from the Nixon White House, gay rights ordinances um, in cities all over America, they did seem to be so broadly popular and they became these vicious wedge issues. How did they do that? How did they generate so much heat? It's actually a question that uh, I found kind of easy to wrap my mind around. If you look at these same people who often cut their teeth in the Goldwater campaign in 1964, and you know from my first book, you know, Before the Storm, about Barry Goldwater, the whole point of Barry Goldwater was he completely delivered conservative ideology in its purest or with no trimming, right? He just said, I'm for this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and no rhetoric whatsoever. And often there were very unpopular things like privatizing Social Security, you know, America's old age insurance program, right? He was the kind of ideologue that I believe you just kind of explained to people why these things allegedly limit freedom that the scales would fall from their eyes and they would become conservatives, right? It was very straight like that. And he lost, of course, and the theory was disproven. It was kind of a proof of concept. Once people are actually presented with conservative ideas, you know, outside the liberal echo chamber, they'll realize that they're conservatives too. That's the slogan in your heart, you know, he's right. And it failed, right? And so these people basically reverse the operation, they would find things that were already angering people, often in very localized contexts. They would prospect for them. They would say, what are the things that are angering people the most when it comes to, you know, basically how the social changes of the 1960s were working their way into the mainstream of society? Yes, gay rights. Yes, feminism. They called it organizing discontent. They would organize people around these issues. And then they would try and bring them into the conservative coalition and say, have you ever thought about what a scam social security is, right? So the seduction was there. It was enormously effective because they were enormously sophisticated people when it came to marketing. You know, one of these guys, Richard Vigory, was one of the first people to use mainframe computers to do direct mail. And we actually do testing. How much money did this letter that said children are forced to uh, watch sex ed demonstrations in schools, right? Compared to homosexuals are burning Bibles in the public square. You know, what is the best message to activate people's lizard brains? 
And, you know, I demonstrate how they do it in the book. Yeah, which is pretty, why, why conservatives are better at culture wars than, than liberals. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a certain point in the book where I talk about Phyllis Schlafly, who was, you know, the leader of the anti-feminist movement in America. And I compare him to what Lawrence Arabia says about, um, or even Clausewitz says about a guerrilla fighter. It's like, you sow doubt, you sow confusion. And once you sow doubt and confusion about how the world works and claim that the enemy is responsible for turning your lives upside down, you've got them. They have the advantage of exploiting entropy. <laughs> and in a time yeah, yeah. of social change, you know, there's a lot of entropy, right? Whereas, you know, like, you know, like um, Sam Rayburn was one of the most colorful. He was the Speaker of the House of Representatives and he was Lyndon Johnson's um, mentor. And he'd say, it's, you know, basically to, to say it's, it's easier to basically tear down something than build something. Anyone can tear down a barn. Anyone can say, you know, Washington is broken. Anyone can say there's no reason to trust these politicians. <laughs> building trust, building an effective government is um, you're, you're fighting entropy. You know, you're expending more energy in the Newtonian sense. It's really when conservatives realize that they could exasperate people's feelings of kind of dispossession, that the world was in chaos that they were really able to kind of find their groove politically. And, you know, obviously these techniques are still an enormous part of the, the arsenal. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things happening now that people will sort of recognize in this book. And a lot of people talked about Reagan during this period as a, as a racist, as an extremist. Even I think Jesse Jackson called him a fascist. Moderate Republicans were kind of embarrassed by him and, you know, would rather have had someone else prior to the, to the actual election campaign. Yeah. Do we have, or do Americans sort of have false memories of a more reasonable conservatism, particularly during the, the Trump years? Or is it is it just that the GOP keeps getting more and more extreme, so it makes the previous extreme seem sensible by comparison? Right. It's, very, it's a very popular trope among liberals and Democrats to claim that each previous generation of conservatives was, you know, sensible compared to this one. You know, when Barry Goldwater came along, they would talk about this guy named Robert Taft, even though when Robert Taft was around in the 40s, you know, he was seen as this you know, terrible extremist. And one way to think about that is that, in fact, once politics or reaction gets its foothold, that it does kind of continually kind of seize more ground because they're working in a context that it's, you know, in a lot of ways, fundamentally Enlightenment-based and liberal and its kind of official ideology, right? So what would Reagan have been like if he'd, you know, come from the dead and was able to work with a Congress that was majority Republican and he was able to do the stuff that he really wanted to do instead of being this kind of very shrewd, tactical, pragmatic mm. politician who was willing to accept half a loaf. So context is very important. Politicians don't just kind of choose the policies that they're going to pursue out of a catalog, right? They have to deal with the context as it's given to them. But by the other token, all the most kind of gothic, extreme, even violent portions of Trump's coalition and even, you know, kind of the kind of politics practice by Trump itself were present, you know, all through this period that I'm writing. But there was also this kind of balancing kind of flyweight of much more establishment-based, institutional-based Republicans and conservatives. And a big part of the story between Reagan and Trump is the slow wearing away of these sort of uh, moderating influences. 
Trump is a remarkable figure in that if you kind of bookend him with Ronald Reagan, this is a guy who knew that there were certain things that you could say and certain things that you couldn't say, right? You can see that in the documents, you know, don't say this anymore. You'll scare people. And then he wouldn't say it anymore as opposed to this completely unfiltered guy, uh, Donald Trump, whose introduction to the American electorate is Mexicans and maybe Middle Easterners are sending rapists to the country. The metaphor I use is it's like the difference between the dog whistle and the train whistle. And how did that happen? That's kind of the big story of understanding the shifts in conservatism between 1980 and certainly the the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. All those elements were present. It's not a story of discontinuity. And one another thing I suppose I grew up with was this idea that these um, the evangelicals and conservatives of the new right sincerely believed in what they were saying, that they were kind of worry, you know, dangerous because they were fanatics. And yet under Trump, their modern equivalents sort of cheerfully junked a load of core principles. Um, I mean, literally, you know, obviously you know, in the, in the polling. Oh, well, I mean, people are so creative with their theology, right? I mean, it's like, once you get to the territory of, oh, well, God has always chosen flawed, flawed vessels like, you know, this adulterer David who, you know, sent, you know, the, the husband of his lover off to war, right, Bathsheba. Or, oh, well, you know, uh, God had Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia, rebuild the second temple. You know, you can always come up with kind of theological justifications for uh, the most extraordinary um, pirouettes. And that's just the nature of conservative Protestantism in America. Right. I don't think that the Christian rights leaders are cynical in embracing Donald Trump. One thing I try and establish in Reaganland is that, you know, the evangelicals I write about, there's an enormous amount of ends justify the means thinking even then. All sorts of shading of the truth, all sorts of cheating, basically. Yeah. I don't quite accept the the distinction you're drawing, but I see, you know, where it's coming from. Yeah, no, well, I think th- that distinction is much like Carter being brought down by the, the hostages. It was another of those things that I sort of, uh, that I realized was not quite as I believed when I was... Uh, they're fanatical then, they're up. fanatical now, yeah. Um, I mean, so much more I'd like to talk about, but but I just, running out of time, and, and I wanted to say that like a minor character in, uh-huh. in Reaganland is Senator Joe Biden. Yes, that's correct. 1972, at the age of 29, he pops up now and then. Um, he maybe actually won. He, he maybe is the guy who was, you want to look at, who was cynical, actually. What does Biden then tell us about Biden now? I mean, he's changed in yeah. sort of, in many ways. What's the consistent? The consistency right. is the inconsistency. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I narrate Biden as one of the kind of, you know, he's kind of the tip of the spear in the rightward movement of the Democratic Party, who's, you know, running for re-election in 1978, bragging that he's the most frugal senator. He's basically the guy who creates a way for um, northern liberals to vote with southern conservatives when it comes to school desegregation. This is a politician who sticks his finger in the wind with evident sincerity, is able to kind of represent you know, kind of the center of public opinion as his opinion. Since he's a weather rain, he shows which way the wind is blowing. And, you know, clearly in American politics, it's blowing much more from the left. And uh, there's also the fact that I think as a guy who's kind of going to meet his maker soon, he really is, he's, he's kind of like, what the heck? I'm going to basically go back to the old tunes of, you know, kind of liberal Keynesianism. I think that he's very much after this very long career in which he's 
basically held every sorts of sort of ideological position. It's like I'm going to help <laughs> basically the most Americans, and uh, it's actually quite extraordinary to see. He's a hero for kind of basically abandoning that sort of set of concessions that the Democratic Party made to uh, the powers that be and turning himself into a principled liberal. Well, I've seen some conservatives try to, you know, launch the attack line that that, that Biden is the new Carter. And obviously, as, as people, I mean, they're, they're, they're very, very different. What do, what do you think it means in the American imagination to say that he's he's the new Carter? That would be kind of like uh, identifying a Republican politician with Hoover, you know, in the 1930s, 40s or 50s, right? So Carter becomes the symbol of failure, right? But, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, if that's all they've got, it's pretty weak tea because you know, that was a long time ago and American memories are short. It's an attempt to asso- associate him with kind of incompetence and facklessness. Well, for one thing, Jimmy Carter's image in American life right now is, is this kind of selfless, yes. heroic, you know, curer of diseases, you know, and builders of houses. So I'm not particularly sure how that will work out for them tactically. Yeah. The, the best post-presidency of, uh, of all time. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Rick Perlstein. It's a pleasure, Dorian. Thanks. Cheers. Reaganland is out now in hardback and published in paperback on the 30th of September by Simon & Schuster. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. Take care. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.